Think about this song that she just played for us. Eight billion people in this world. Mike, and he knows your name. How about that? I mean, that's amazing to me. He doesn't just love the world. He loves me. He knows me. He knows you. And uh, he knows our name. That ought to make you uh, shout for joy right there. Take your Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 1. And if you'd like to put a finger in Acts chapter 16, we'll start out there. We'll end up in Philippians. Last Sunday, we looked at um, Acts chapter 16. And uh, when Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, and Luke came to Macedonia and left behind a, a, a church, a brand new church. When they got there, there wasn't a church. When they left, there was. And uh, a new fellowship of believers was founded. And uh, about 10 to 11 years after that departure in Acts 1640, uh, Paul is now in jail. We're going to walk to that point here in a moment. Uh, writing this letter to the church in Philippi that he was part of starting 10 to 11 years previous. So let's just, uh, before we get into Philippians, let's kind of go back and recall some of the things that we looked at last week and some truths that we can find uh, in Acts chapter 16 that help us in our lives. The first truth that we learn from Acts 16 is that God alone is worthy of worship and He is to be praised at all times and in every situation. You remember when Paul and Silas were in Philippi, they were beaten severely and put into prison. And at midnight, it says they sang, they prayed and they sang praises to God. Now, we just sang some praises here this morning, but I don't think anybody this morning before you got here were beaten with rods. Anybody here this morning that that you were beaten with rods this morning? You might not have got a good night's sleep. That's tough enough. You might have had a hard time finding a parking place this morning. You know what? And and don't raise your hand, but how many of you complained about that? Don't, don't, don't raise your hand. Um... That's about the hardest that we had it today before we came to worship God was we had a hard time finding a parking place. And you know what? Uh, you, you think about it. Uh, there are lots of cities in America today that don't have a parking problem. I'm glad we do. I like our city and a lot of other people like it too. That's why we had a parking problem this morning. And so, you know, what you might consider is not a good circumstance really uh, is not that bad. And it certainly beats a beating with rods. Amen? How many of you are happy to be here this morning? Yeah. I'd rather be here than in the best jail in Texas. I mean, this is a great place to be this morning. And But in jail, after having been beaten, Paul and Silas had a prayer meeting. And a praise, a time of praise and worship. And that just reminds us that there's never a time when praise is out of place. There's never a time that we shouldn't bring honor and glory to the Lord. And not only that, but the second thing we learned is that the preaching of the gospel is the greatest help we can give to anyone. 
You remember that vision that Paul saw in Troas? He, he saw a man of Macedonia saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. It was a plea for help. And Luke writes, after seeing that vision, we uh, endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. They were asking for help, and Paul says, we're on our way. We've got the gospel. Listen, there is no greater help you can give anyone than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're told by Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves. And listen, making the gospel known to our neighbors is the number one way that we can show them that we love them. You see, the gospel is that Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead. And on Calvary, God demonstrated the greatest love ever. God commendeth his love toward us, Paul said, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on that cross for us. That's the greatest love the world has ever seen or heard of or known. And the greatest thing we can do to love our neighbors is to make that gospel known. In fact, unfortunately, we have churches today that really hide the gospel because they don't want to proclaim it, because they don't want to make people feel guilty. They don't want to push people away. Well, if you preach about sin and repentance and coming to Christ, you're going to drive people away. No, no, no. Jesus said, if I be lifted up on that cross, I will draw all men unto me. It isn't the preaching of the cross that drives men away. It draws people. And the church must proclaim the gospel. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. You know, within the walls of this building, we all know the gospel. We've heard it. We believe it. We love it. We preach it. Outside the walls is where the gospel needs to go. We cannot hide the gospel. In fact, if we hide it, withholding the gospel is the ultimate in being unloving. Not only uh, that uh, Jesus or uh, God is to be praised at all times and all places and that the gospel is the greatest way we can help. In fact, I did ask last week, for you to pray that God would give you opportunity for a gospel conversation. I hope you did that. I hope you prayed and I hope God gave that to you. And I'm going to ask you to do it again this week. Pray and ask God. Listen to, listen to what Paul said in Colossians. He says, with all praying for us that Christ, or excuse me, that God would open unto us a door of utterance, an opportunity to speak. He said in Ephesians chapter 6, Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So pray. Ask God for a gospel conversation this week. Third thing we learn from Acts 16 is that churches that are growing are churches that are grounded in the faith and going with the gospel. You know, when Paul and, uh, uh, Paul and Silas went through the, those churches that, they, that Paul had been to five years before, they brought back the sound doctrine that salvation is not by keeping the law of Moses, but we believe, he said, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved. That's sound doctrine, and he delivered it to those 
uh, Gentile believers, those Grecian believers, those Jewish believers, and grounded them in the truth of the gospel that it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that saves you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they delivered those decrees to them. And the Bible says in Acts 16.4 that they were established in the faith. Those churches were established. They were solidified. They were grounded in the faith and increased in number daily. Churches grow when they're grounded in the truth. Let me just pitch a little advertisement here. Get in a small group. Get in a Sunday school class. Be part of a study. Uh, where's John? John, you're teaching Colossians, right? Where's John Hairgrove? I know he's here. Right there. You teach right in here every Sunday morning. You're going through Colossians. Is that what you're going through? All right. That's a good class. Get in join it. Uh, there are several classes across the street. We've got 8.30, 9.30, and 11 o'clock Sunday school classes. If you're not involved in one, get in one. You say, why? Because you get grounded in the faith. Listen, you don't ever outgrow Sunday school. I've been saved since 1968. I've been in church and Sunday school, and I still go to a Bible study on a regular basis. Why? Because I'm always learning something new. If I'm not learning something new, it's solidifying what I have learned. Kathy, how long you been going to school? Well, you don't have to tell us how long. But you've been in Sunday school as long as I have, right? Yeah, longer? Oh, my. Have you outgrown it? No. Get grounded in the faith. If you want your church to grow, you've got to grow. Personally, inside, in your faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, we learn these things in Acts chapter 16. Not only that, but a fourth thing we learn, you see it up here on the screen, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. When Paul showed up there in Philippi, uh, he preached the gospel, an, an affluent businesswoman got saved. A demon-possessed slave girl got saved. One of the men who took part in Paul's persecution, the jailer there in Philippi, got saved. And his family. Listen, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. Who do you think of? Who comes to your mind? What person enters your mind when you think of someone who's far from God? Whoever that person you thought of, maybe you're one. To take the gospel to. Listen, there is no one beyond the scope of the gospel. Paul himself was a perfect picture of that. Paul was a persecutor of Christians and then became a preacher of the faith that he once persecuted. Speaking of persecution, the fifth thing we learned from Acts 16 is that persecution accompanies the gospel. You cannot be involved in gospel ministry without opposition. Satan will make sure that you get it. Now, you may not ever be beaten with rods. I don't ever, Tom, I don't ever want to be beaten with rods. I've never been beaten for the gospel. I've had rocks thrown at me. I got hit in the back with a pretty good-sized rock one time. I've been threatened to be burnt. I had a beer, some beer poured on me. <laughs> but I've never been beaten with rods. But persecution, whatever it looks like, opposition to the gospel is going to be coming your way if you're involved in gospel ministry. Not only that, but the gospel, the sixth truth, changes people's lives. You know, sometimes we'll see somebody go through a hard time, maybe a really catastrophic event in their life. And we say, you'd think if anything would get through to them and change them, that would change them. 
Catastrophes don't change lives. Rules and laws don't change people. You know what changes people? The gospel of the grace of God. It is the grace that that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and for mine, laid down his life and rose from the dead. That gospel is what changes your life. It transformed Lydia. It transformed that young slave girl. It transformed that jailer. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You're born into a new family. And that's the seventh truth we look at from Acts chapter 16. The gospel of Jesus Christ puts you into a new family. That last verse in Acts chapter 16 said this, that when Paul and Silas left that jail, they went to Lydia's house, and there they met with the brethren, the brothers. What does that mean? It's family. You see, when you get saved, you're born again into a new family. God looks at this world this way. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Now, we divide the world up all kinds of ways. We've got Europeans and Asians, South Americans and Canadians and Americans, Japanese. We've got tall. We've got short. We've got big. We've got little. We've got young. We've got old. We divide people so many different ways. God looks at the world in two ways. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Now, when Paul left Philippi, he left there, he left uh, Luke behind to continue to pastor this young church. And he traveled to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens, to Corinth, to Ephesus, and then back to Caesarea in Syria and up the coast to Antioch where he had started. He gave a report to the church there of what God was doing now in Europe, in Macedonia, in that area. And then he didn't waste any time. He got back on the road again in what we refer to as Paul's third missionary journey. He goes to Galatia. He goes to Phrygia. He goes to Ephesus and several other places. And he made at least one stop, maybe two, in Philippi on that third missionary journey. We know he was in Macedonia two different times and probably in Philippi both of those times. He travels to several other places, makes his way back by boat, lands at Caesarea, and all along the way, he has been gathering offerings to take back to the poor saints in Jerusalem because they are suffering great persecution at this time. And so he hurries to get back to Jerusalem, and when he lands at Caesarea, he makes a beeline for Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he begins to, to minister there, and Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. His plans at that point were to go from Jerusalem back to Antioch and from there to head to Rome with the gospel. And then from Rome on to Spain. Paul was always looking to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he got arrested in Jerusalem. And while he was there, 40 men put themselves under an oath saying, We will not eat or drink until we kill this man. Now... Paul, you got problems? Colin, you got problems? Ain't none of us got problems less like that. Forty people swearing under an oath, I won't eat, I won't drink until this man is dead. I've often wondered, did they keep that oath? <laughs> you know, they weren't going to, they were very serious about this. 
But they didn't get him. Word got to the officials. They took Paul by night. They brought him down to Caesarea. They put him in jail in Caesarea for his own protection. He was there for two years in jail in Caesarea. He made an appeal to Caesar because as a Roman citizen, he had a right to do that. And so they put him on board a ship headed to Rome. He had never intended to go in Rome in chains. He intended to go as a free man preaching the gospel, but God had other plans. He did get to Rome. Just not the way he planned it. When Paul got to Rome and along the way, there was a shipwreck. Um, He came and was placed under house arrest and he was awaiting trial in Rome. And the folks back in Philippi got word of this and they sent a man from Philippi to Rome to minister to Paul in his time there. That man's name was Epaphroditus. You read about him in chapter 2 of this letter. It would be a good read this afternoon. He was a great man. You know the thing about Epaphroditus? If Paul hadn't mentioned him by name in this letter, none of us would ever even know that he lived. And you read about him in chapter 2. won't go into it this morning. There's a whole message just in what kind of man he was. Epaphroditus was a great Christian, a great servant, a great man of God. Well, we wouldn't even know who he was had Paul not mentioned him briefly here in this letter. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of people that I'm looking at right here, right now. Look at uh, Chris Leon. Faithfully, he and his wife serving the Lord Jesus Christ here at Main Street Baptist Church. Teaching children, now teaching uh, middle school kids and, and working. I see... Alan Hart, who serves in music ministry, and I could look around and name so many different others. Sarah Clausen and the work she does with children's ministry, um, and on and on and on. Who knows those people? Sarah, have they put you in Christianity today lately? No. Nobody, you know, outside us knows Sarah Clausen. God does. Corrine Teo, she's back there right now working and serving. One of the best Christian women I have ever met in my life. Who knows about her outside of right here? In fact, some of you are saying, who? But God knows. And Epaphroditus was that kind of guy. He was, I call, the everyman. Everybody knows Charles Stanley, who just recently passed away. We all know his name. We all know Billy Graham's name. In Paul's day, now we, we all know who the Apostle Paul is, but this Epaphroditus guy... If Paul hadn't mentioned him here, we wouldn't know. Heaven will be filled with people just like Epaphroditus that you never heard of and I never heard of. Be that guy. Be that Epaphroditus. So Paul's here awaiting trial in Rome. Ten, eleven years after his first trip to Philippi, Epaphroditus has come to to, uh, be with him. And uh, Paul... uh, is under house arrest, and he writes this letter that we read here in Philippians chapter 1. Would you stand with me as we read the first seven verses of this letter Paul writes back to this church? It's really a thank you letter to the Philippian believers, thanking them for sending Epaphroditus, thanking them for the gifts that he brought, thanking them for their support and fellowship in the gospel. He said, from the first day till now. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father 
and from the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. God bless our time in your word this morning. May it accomplish, Lord, in us what you want it to accomplish. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In verse 1, Timothy lets us, or Paul lets us know that Timothy is with him there in Rome as he writes this letter back. In chapter 2, we find out that Paul intends to send Timothy back to Philippi, uh, soon. He, in fact, Paul says, I plan to come myself as soon as I know how the outcome of this trial is going to be. Paul expected that he would be released from prison, but he also recognized here in chapter 1, he says so, that it could be his last. He said, whether by life or by death, I want to magnify my Savior. And so Paul writes this letter saying, I can't come right now. I plan to come. I want to send Timothy, but right now I'm sending this letter to you by the hand of Epaphroditus. And in that letter, look down if you've got your Bible there, verse 12 of chapter 1. Paul makes a a pretty telling statement here, uh, referring to the persecutions that he's gone through since he last saw them, the arrest in Jerusalem, the uh, attempt on his life, the imprisonment, the shipwreck, and all these things that had happened during that time span. Paul says, the things that happened unto me. Quite an understatement. You know, I think if I had been writing that, I would have said, Hey, y'all, you want to believe this. Let me tell you what I've been through. And then go on and weave this story. None of it untrue, but just let, you know, putting it out there. Hey, I've been through it for Jesus. Okay? Y'all need to hold me in high regard because I am the man. Now, Paul just said, The, the things that happened unto me, the beatings, the persecutions, the attempt on his life, the, the false imprisonment and, and all that. He said, the things that happened to me, those circumstances, he said, the things that happened to me, he said, have happened rather unto the furtherance, the advance of the gospel. That's all that Paul minded. That's what was on his thoughts. He goes, I'm not worried about the, the things that happened to me. They happened to further the gospel. You know, Paul looked at his circumstances and said, hey, God is in control. Listen, when you can have a prayer meeting and a time of praise in a prison cell in Philippi, you know you know that God is in control. He wasn't bemoaning his circumstances. In fact, he said, it's not in spite of my circumstances, but because of my circumstances that the gospel has gone further. He said, even people in Caesar's palace have heard the gospel. The praetorian guard, the best of the best, Caesar's own household. Paul ends this letter uh, in chapter 4. He says, all the saints here salute you, chiefly those that are of Caesar's household. How did Caesar's household get the gospel? Because Paul was in chains. They wouldn't have gotten it any other way. That was how God brought to them the gospel. There is in heaven today people 
who were part of Caesar's household. We're talking Nero. We're talking, uh, as my, my, my grandson said, bad guys. He's really into bad guys. We went to see Cinderella the other night uh, up here at this palace theater. Uh, and they should pay me because I'm going to give them a plug here. It was really good. Uh, of course, I love the story of Cinderella anyway. But when we left, he was not happy. Jonathan was, no, I said, Jonathan, that's my youngest son. Bubba was walking out. He was kind of stoop-shouldered. I said, did you like it? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, what's wrong? He goes, I wanted to beat up the bad guy. <laughs> he was literally mad because we left there without a chance for him to punch the bad guy. And so, anyway, we even actually went out backward afterwards and tried to find the bad guy, <laughs> see if he'd let him take a swing at him. He wasn't there, so I just had to convince Bubba. I said, look, he heard you were coming, dude. He's scared. <laughs> he laughed. Anyway, uh, so where were we? Uh, so Paul is here in prison, and because of his chains, the gospel reached Caesar's household. And Paul said, I rejoice in that. I will always rejoice when the gospel is preached. And so in verse number one here, Paul writes and calls them saints. We're going to get back to that here in a minute. Uh, he says, uh, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his normal uh, opening statement. And then in verses three, four, and seven, he basically says, you're in my thoughts. I remember you. You're in my prayers. I pray for you. You're in my heart. I love you. That's real fellowship. In verse number five, he says, he thanks God for them, for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That gospel is the message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It's a message of grace. It's a message unlike any other message in the world. It is a message that says, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is finished. Christ paid for it with his blood. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And we are in him. Notice here Paul calls them saints. He says, in Christ Jesus. We get that slide up there. In Christ Jesus at Philippi. The in Christ, Paul's talking here about the church. And he says, you are in Christ. That's referring to a universal body of believers. That is the church wide from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. Yeah. Guys, can we get that slide up on the screen, please? Or is it up here and not back there? All right, well, uh, being in Christ means you are in that body of believers that started at the foundation on, on, on the day of Pentecost and will continue until Jesus says, come up here and raptures his church. Every born-again believer is in that body. But then he says, not only in Christ, but which are at... Philippi, that's a local assembly. The church universal has never yet fulfilled its calling. The word church, ecclesia, means a called out assembly. The entire body of Christ, the universal church, has never one time all gathered together in one place. 
one day we will. You know, uh, we had uh, Paul's father passed away this week. His funeral service was yesterday, and it was a joyous occasion. Although we hurt here, we know where he's at, and we know that the promise is that uh, those which are uh, asleep in Christ, God will raise first and will be gathered together with them in the rapture. And at that point in time, in that day, I'm going to be back together with those I've lost. Those that you've lost, you're going to be rejoined with them in Christ. And all the church from the day of Pentecost to the rapture will be gathered together before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will worship him for the first time ever, the entire body of Christ. What a day that's going to be. You know, we're going to worship him with the saints of every age. And every Christian is in that church. You are born into that through the blood of Jesus and by his resurrection. But every person who is in Christ, in the universal sense, needs to be plugged into and involved in a local assembly. That's how the church operates. That's how Christ operates in this world is through local churches all over the world. And so Paul says you're in Christ, you're at Philippi, and you are part of what he calls here the fellowship of the gospel. Let's look at that in, in our closing here. Uh, Romans 12.5 says, so we being many are one body. Romans 12, or uh, Ephesians 1.22 says that Christ is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to look here, and I want you to pay special attention to this. Paul says, for as the body is one. How many bodies are there? One. One universal body. The body is what? That's pretty weak. The body is one. And has many members, and all the members of that One body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by, for by, one more time, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into, say it, that one, you think he's trying to get something across here? One, 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 one. That is the body of Christ, universal from start to finish. And if you are saved this morning, you are in that one body. Now, notice what he says here. He says, you've been made to drink. I'm going to drink. Into one spirit. And you're baptized into one body. Two things happen the moment you get saved. Something comes into you and you go into something. What goes into you? Christ comes into you. You drink and something goes in. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, Mike, Jesus Christ came to live inside of you. And he's never left. And he says, I'll never leave. I'm here forever. 
And at that same moment when you received Christ as your Savior, not only did the Holy Spirit of God come to plant himself inside of you, bringing the fullness of the Godhead within you, he said you were baptized into Christ. Now that is not going up into this baptistry back here and being baptized in water. No, Jesus said this in Acts 1-5, John truly baptized with water... But, there's a conjunction there. Grammatically, that means what he's about to say is different than what he just said. He said, John truly baptized you with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this spirit baptism is not this water baptism. It's different. Water baptism figures that, it shows that, it pictures that. But this spirit baptism is what happens when you receive Christ as your Savior and God takes you, the Spirit takes you and places Christ in you and you in Christ. Chris Leon, that means now you are part of Jesus. You're in his body. And he's in you. Jesus is in me and I am in Jesus and that folks, is the fellowship of the gospel. That's the basis of it. I am a partner with Christ in the gospel. The spiritual transaction takes place putting you in Christ and Christ in you. And this is the fulfillment of what Jesus prayed for in John 17 when he said to the Father the night before his crucifixion, he said that they may be one as you, Father, are in me And I in you that they also may be one in us. And he accomplished that with his death, his burial, and resurrection. You share with Christ in the gospel. Let's go to um, Romans chapter 6 here. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, I got nothing up here that tells me what's back here, so I'm just going to have to hope I'm on the right spot here. Um, notice what Paul says here in Romans chapter 6. He says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. That's what we just read about in 1 Corinthians 12. It's not a water baptism. You don't get into Christ by getting in the baptistry. You get wet by getting into the baptistry. And that is a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, which you and I are made a part of when we receive Christ as our Savior. He says, you were baptized into Jesus Christ. You were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in new life. John, you know what happened to me when I got saved? I got a part of Jesus. I got in him. I am dead. I am buried. And I am risen with Christ. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. That's why he said in Colossians 2 that we are buried with him in baptism and also risen with him. That's why he says in Colossians 3.1, since you're risen from uh, with Christ, seek those things which are above. You know why I know I'm saved? You know why I know I cannot lose that salvation? I'm in Christ. 
I'm part of him. His death. You say, well, but you're a sinner. You've done bad things. You probably did some bad things this morning. You'll probably do some bad things tomorrow. You know what? You're right. But I died 2,000 years ago on a cross. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took me with him. He took my sins. He paid the price on the cross for you and for me. He died for Adam. And that's who you are. You are in Adam until you receive Christ. And then you are dead with him. You are buried with him. You rose with him. And now you are in Christ Jesus. That ought to make a, 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 a even a Baptist shout. Amen. Yeah. Might even work on an Episcopalian. Listen, folks. You cannot lose with Jesus. The battle is over. We sang it about this morning. It's finished. I'm fighting the battle. He's already won. Jesus went to the cross, died for my sins, cried out, it is finished. And three days later, punctuated that by saying, I'm alive again. And I'm in Him. I don't have to pay for my sins. They've been paid for. I died with Jesus. I rose with Jesus. I'm alive with Jesus. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, I am right now seated in Jesus in heavenly places. I'm as good as in heaven with the door shut, Mike. You cannot lose it. Now, I know some people think, well, yeah, but if you do X, Y, Z sin or you do A, B, C sin. Listen, if you think you can lose your salvation by your sin, you don't understand grace. You don't understand the gospel. You might be religious. You might be a church person. You don't understand grace. Grace is all of Christ and none of me. Grace says this, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, to get into the fellowship of the gospel, there is nothing you can do to get in, and there's nothing you can do to get out. If you are born again, you're born into him, you're part of him, you're with him, you're dead, buried, and risen with Christ, your salvation is secure. Listen, you say, but but I know you, or you might do something bad. Yes, you might do something bad too. But my salvation isn't dependent on who I am or what I do. My salvation is dependent on one thing and one alone, and that is Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for me. And folks, until you grasp that, you'll never understand the goodness and the grace of God that we have in the gospel. There's no other message in the world like that. My pastor, uh, you, oh, I'm out of time. Look at this. I, Paul, I, you should have just done my, my next sweaty. I'm out of time. Let me bring this to a close. We're about to partake in communion. Paul said that communion is a communion of the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. And that word communion to use there in 1 Corinthians 10 is our word here in Philippians 1, fellowship. As a body of believers in the fellowship of the gospel, we rejoice in the fact that Christ died and shed his blood for us. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Listen, nobody loves you like he does. Don't run away from the greatest love that's ever been known on this earth. His death is your death. He died for you. 
His burial was your burial. His resurrection is your resurrection. And we enter that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To be the fellowship of the gospel. Father, bless us now as we enter into this time of communion. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to, as a fellowship of the gospel, to love one another as you have loved us. You said, by this shall all men know that we're your disciples if we have love one toward another. Help us, Lord, to do that and to be your gospel witness into this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask those that are going to come and